please give your attention to a reading from God's word. Psalm 72 of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon, throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound, till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever and his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're going to be looking at this psalm as the capstone of our season of Advent as it looks forward to the glory of King Jesus as he establishes the reign of God being the fulfillment of this great prayer as we're going to look here in a moment of David for his son Solomon. That attribution of Solomon doesn't mean necessarily written by Solomon. I'm going to just lay my cards down at the beginning of the hand, so to speak. Uh, I believe this is David's command, or David's prayer rather, for his son as he seeks to establish his son's reign uh, at his son's inauguration or or anointing uh, for that kingdom. And yet we're going to see that nothing could be established by a mere man. Everything that this psalm contains that describes this kingdom is way beyond the ability of a, of a mere mortal to, 
to enact or to accomplish. And so we're going to follow this psalm. We're going to move through the reading in order, and we're going to trace it through a few themes. First, the entire psalm focuses on the nature of God's kingdom and the blessings which come through his kingdom to his people. Everything here that this king is being asked to do or or everything that God is being petitioned to grant for this king comes through God's power and for God's people. Ultimately, although this psalm is about the king, it's about the king only as God's king. We're going to see that this king is an extension of God's reign. That is, God's kingdom is established through this king's reign. We're going to look at uh, the king's eternal and worldwide reign. As soon as the prayers begin to build up for this king, his reign begins to take on cosmic and epic proportions such that the imagery used by the psalmist um, becomes so great that we are forced to ask ourselves this question, who could possibly be the fulfillment of this prayer or this, this song? Th- this song of David or this prophetic oracle given for his son and his son's inauguration or his son's installation as king, it's not simply describing what David would hope for Solomon. We also see it is describing who this king will be. What will he look like? When, when God answers the promises given to David, what will that king do? What will he, how will he live? How will he reign? We're going to look at the righteousness of his reign, and this really is the heart of the psalm when we get to verses 12 through 14. We're, we're really moving from the periphery to the direct center of what is the heart of this king? Who, who is he in his innermost being? Not is he just someone who is powerful and able to wield political and military and economic power. Who is he in his heart And I think that's what the center of this psalm shows us. And then we move again back outward to look again at his eternal worldwide reign. And just as a teaser, it's very interesting if you know the history of Israel that these uh, boundaries that are described of his reign are not in the nation of Israel. We're going to see why that's very important. And then finally, this psalm is closed with a doxology or, or an explosion of praise to God for what God has done. Again, remember, this is God's kingdom and God's grace which is being given to this king. And then finally, we're going to look at this last verse, which is somewhat very strange when you consider uh, the context of the passage. It almost seems to not fit and yet, I believe it's deeply significant. And there's, there's a lot of importance that's contained in this last verse. Uh, just if you are unaware, the book of the Psalms is organized into five sections. And many consider this to be the close of what's called book three, or excuse me, book two. And book two contains prayers for the individual king or the person who is being uh, oppressed or or tracked down by his enemies. And this psalm is a capstone of the psalms about God's king. And so just like Psalm 2 or Psalm 110, this is a vision of what are the attributes and qualities of the king that God chooses and installs. And so we're going to see how all of the prayers of David are not only answered, or excuse me, are not only ended 
in this description, but in the fulfillment of it, they're answered completely. And we're going to see uniquely the glory of Jesus Christ as that answer. So perhaps this psalm was a prayer for Solomon by his father David. Uh, We know this because of the unique circumstances surrounding that last verse, the prayers of David are ended. But David is not just seen as a human author. He also is seen as someone who's been anointed by God to pass the baton to his son Solomon. The reason why many theologians consider this to be a prayer of David for Solomon is that these same phrases and words are contained in 1 Chronicles 16 when David prays for his son. And so uh, just at the very onset, this little attribution that says of Solomon, that doesn't mean it was written by Solomon. That word of in the Hebrew can mean for or concerning or about. It simply means this is David's heart for his son Solomon, that as David is passing the baton, he's hoping that David will be that great fulfillment of all the promises given to him in the Davidic covenant. Knowing the promises that are given to him, David prays for God to grant God's justice and God's righteousness to the king for his people. Uh, If you have ever read 2 Samuel 7, you'll, you'll see that God makes a great promise to David, saying to David that you will never lack a man to live on the throne or to reign on the throne, and that uh, God will correct his missteps and he will bring him back to himself. And so David, as he's leaving life, he's entrusting all of the promises of God to his son. And as he does this, he offers up a prayer that is simultaneously a description of what a righteous king looks like. He asks that God would give the king not some justice or a type of justice, but God's justice and your righteousness to the royal son. You see, the king and the royal son here are in the same position. These are the same people. The royal son is the son of the current king, David. And then as David, uh, you know, abdicates and and passes away, he is going to pass on the kingdom to his son who will become the king. Verse 2, may he judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. So even though the rest of this psalm is about the king, everything at the beginning focuses on God, God's kingdom, God's reign, God's grace, working through God's choice to bless God's people. Clearly, the focus is on God's reign through the king's reign. And we clearly see that God's reign is to be extended by or fulfilled in or completed in the king's reign. The king cannot reign apart from God, and he cannot reign outside of God's authority. The king here is neither the source of justice and righteousness, nor is it adequate that he give a best effort or use his opinions of justice and righteousness. The psalmist is asking for God's people to be established because God gives his standard of justice, his quality of righteousness to this king. God's people need God's protection, not simply just a good king with a little bit of injustice. They need a godly king with perfect justice, with perfect righteousness. 
It's not enough that the people be given an adequate king or a king who is okay. They need a perfect king. This is so important even as we consider the political questions of our day. We don't need a leader who's just better than another party or better than our opponent or their opponent or a leader with some good ideas. We need a leader who can establish justice in a true sense. And it might be understood quite clearly that injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. There can't be a little corner of this kingdom in which injustice is permitted and justice reigns over the majority except for this area or these people or this part of society. No, these people, the people of God, the people in Israel, and as it extends to the whole world, need a perfect king who does not vary. He doesn't turn from the left to the right. He establishes justice and he does what is right, which is to take concern of those who are oppressed. In verse three, we hear, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. I love parallelism in the Psalms because what we see here is this two-hammer blow and then a final drop. He says, may he defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the children of the needy. Those are the same theme. And then there's this unbounded phrase that isn't matched with anything else that just feels like a rock falls and may he crush the oppressor. This king needs to put an end to the oppression. He can't simply just establish some form of righteousness somewhere. He needs to deal with all injustice. Immediately, as this psalm begins, the psalmist starts using words and language that is very strange. And it's, it's actually, it should cause our ears to, to hurt, if you will. Have you ever been listening to music, especially good quality classical music or very technically good, uh, you know, piano performances, you, you ever hear a note that's wrong? If it doesn't get resolved, it, it leaves tension in the rest of the performance. And this is why sometimes you hear people, they play a wrong note and then they play another blue note to cover it up. It, it's a wonderful thing. But this idea that the mountains should establish peace and justice for the people should sound very strange. It should sound like a wrong chord has just been played in this song, so to speak. Through the king's reign, the mountains and hills sustain, they hold up peace and righteousness. Now, I want you to think about this with a Greco mind or a Roman mind for a minute. I want you to think with a Western mind, how can mountains hold a spiritual concept called peace? and righteousness. And what will this king's reign have to do with the mountains at even at the onset? This king is a human ruling over the affairs of men, and yet the psalmist starts to bring in language of creation to describe the quality and excellency of this king's reign. This king is not just king over men. This king is beginning to be demonstrated as the king over existence, the king over creation, the king over everything. This king is not simply heroic and yet tolerant. In our day, we have many examples of political leaders who are 
protecting certain people by certain uses of law and yet are not dealing with the root of injustice. It is not enough that this king shields the weak and the needy, but as we see in verse 4 at the end, he has to crush the source of the evil. He must stop the oppressor. And very interestingly, this word crush reminds us of this great promise that God gave as, as he cursed the serpent. He said that there would come one through Eve who would crush your head. Instantly, we are hearing that this king is not just establishing justice for the people of Israel. He's fulfilling a great, a great need in all of his, human history. This prayer then is seen as the king's reign, but then it begins to expand. And as we saw just a minute ago, it starts to take on language that is not fitting for a human. The king's reign is the source of the faithfulness of God's people. The people of Israel, as we know, at this time, both the time immediately before David and quickly after Solomon and his sons, the people constantly stray from Yahweh. They go away from God's uh, law. They, they break God's heart by worshiping false gods. And here, through the reign of this king, through his reign being inaugurated and established, they, he then has some spiritual benefit for the people. Verse 5, may they, that is the people, fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generation. Whenever you hear in the scripture the sun and the moon, we know immediately that this is the language of timekeeping in the scriptures. In Genesis, God gives the sun and moon not just for heat or lighter energy. He gives them to be rulers over seasons and times and epochs. To this day, we still have months that are loosely based on the moon's revolutions around the earth. Likewise, our days are ruled by the revolution of the earth about the sun. And even indeed, our whole year is based upon our movement of our planet to make a continuous loop around the sun. The heavenly bodies are given to establish and rule over time. And as soon as this king becomes in view, he then is seen as this source of the people's spiritual faithfulness throughout all generations, over all time. It's very interesting language, and what it, what it forces us to do is it forces us to hear this king is not just being established over Israel. This king is being established over everything and everyone. This imagery expands to epic proportions, describing the, the king's reign in the language of creation. This is borrowing very heavily on the creation theme in Scripture. Verse 6, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. When will the moon stop being? When everything stops being. The Lord established a, a pattern in life. If we lose our moon, by the way, everything on this earth is over. <laughs> just so you know. And so understanding just a little bit of, of, um, of the way that, that our planet works on a scientific level, uh, this is a promise that he establishes peace forever until the end of time. 
on this planet. His presence here seems ubiquitous. By ubiquitous, I mean it's everywhere. It's, uh, ubiquity has this notion of being in the ether or in the atmosphere around us. Have you ever been in a, a large rainstorm that comes upon you suddenly? You, you may see some clouds coming in at once, perhaps a cloud or two, but in large rainstorms, if you've ever seen you know, an overcast uh, uh, sky, you know that it's not just one cloud that is pouring rain upon the earth. The clouds are covering everything. And very interestingly, you can't look up as it's raining and see normally which cloud is that rain coming from. Is it the cloud above me or over there? You have no idea where the source of the rain comes from in, in exact proportion precision, you know it just is coming from the heavens. It's coming from above you. And so this king, this, this prayer is asked for this king to be like rain that falls from heaven to earth. And very interestingly, the reign of this king, and that's an that's a unintentional pun, but it's unavoidable here. The reign of this king waters not only the mown grass, it waters the people. Do you see this? Just look closely at this verse, flourish. What flourishes? Grass, flowers, trees, uh, landscape plants, fields full of grain. Those are things which flourish. And here the psalmist is asking that the reign of this king might cause the spiritual flourishing. In his days may the righteous flourish. Not the, not the grain, not the trees, may the people flourish. This king's reign waters not just the grass, but the people themselves. And through this parallel passage, the psalmist is actually asking for this king to exist forever. He's saying, may he, the king, be like the rain that showers the earth. And then here's the parallel passage in verse 7. In his days may righteousness flourish. Over and over again in this psalm, we've been hearing justice and righteousness, peace and justice, peace and righteousness. And here the psalmist asks for a parallel desire. May his days cause righteousness to flourish and may peace abound till the moon is no more. What he's essentially saying here is he's asking for the reign of this king to abound forever and ever. The king's days should be unending, but also his reign should be unbounded. We've seen here in these first verses, five through seven, that this king's reign is not just limited to political things, but is also reigning over spiritual things, causing the flourishing of God's people, causing their faithful fearing of Yahweh when they were straying. But now, in view, in verse eight through, all the way through verse uh, 11, we see that this king is also going to reign far beyond the political boundaries of the nation of Israel. Verse 8 asks, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river, often that's known as the Euphrates, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Though this is clearly Israel's king, this is the king of you know, the king that David is installing, passing the baton to. This is clearly a prayer for Solomon. Though this is Israel's king, the prayer here 
is that Israel's kingdom would begin to abound and spill over the, the region of Israel into the nations. Not that they would militarily conquer everyone, but as we're going to see here in a second, that, that he would conquer through a righteous reign. This psalmist is asking that the, the bounds of Israel would be extended through his dominion, through his reign, to the ends of the earth that they will take over the planet, so to speak. His reign should not just be expansive, it should be thorough. It should be complete. When a king reigns over a territory, there are places in which his reign is not fully realized. There are times in history when certain political factions will exist in a region and rebel against their king and seek to overthrow that king's rule over their region, and yet here he's asking, the psalmist is asking that this king would have a perfect reign. It wouldn't just be an eternal reign. It wouldn't just be an everywhere reign. It would also be complete and thorough and without rebellion in all of the areas over which he reigns. His reign is not merely hypothetical, but it is real and it is unchallenged. There are not people in the reign of this king who are rebelling against him because, as it says, that his enemies are licking the dust. That is to say, he's bringing his enemies to nothing. Though this reign is so great, this king is not a tyrant. He's not someone who reigns through oppression and through uh, exercising authority that he doesn't have. And we see this very clearly in verses 9 and 10 through, excuse me, verses 10 and 11 as these kings come to worship him. Verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. Uh, Tarshish, Tarshish, easy for me to say, is a port city in Spain. And the difference between Spain and Israel, if you're not aware on the map, is the entire length of the Mediterranean Sea. And so this psalmist is asking for probably the most distant port city that he knows about to begin to send tribute to this king. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. It's very interesting to note that a tyrant can ask for tribute wherever he wants. A tribute can be ordered from all places within the king's dominion. This is the right of a king. He receives tribute, usually gold or silver or goods, um, services, servants, livestock, clothing. A king has the right to receive tribute, and yet it would be completely foolish for that king to demand tribute from the most distant regions. Think about it for a second, how expensive it is even in our day to travel across this country, right? And in their day, it would have been absolutely, almost infinitely more difficult to go from Israel to the, late, the land of Spain and to go get things that can perish on the journey or that might spoil or be lost in the journey back to the kingdom uh, or back to the to the throne, it would have been folly for this king to demand tribute that wasn't going to be offered up. He can't go and just simply take it. He can do that from the nearest regions, but it's very difficult for him to demand tribute from the edges of the kingdom. And interestingly enough, this word gift 
is quite important as well because what this says is a tyrant can demand tribute, but a tyrant cannot demand a gift because it's impossible to demand gifts. Especially you who are young, as you go through the next few days, watch over your heart and see whether or not you are happy with the gifts that are given. It is impossible. It's, it goes against the nature of what a gift is for the person giving the gift to be giving an obligation, isn't it? It's impossible for me to demand a gift from someone because you can't demand a love offering from another person. You can't demand something be given up freely because your demand removes their ability to give it up freely. And so we see here, because they're bringing gifts, we know that the reign of this king is not an oppressive reign. It's not a reign in which he is exercising authority he doesn't have. Rather, these people, the nations and the kings which come to serve him and bow down before him, they do so because they like to be in his presence. They do not simply just do it out of obligation. The people from Sheba and Seba come to the king because they love visiting this king. This is a king under whom they are blessed, and they respond to that blessing with free will offerings and love gifts to this king. Here's the question, though. Although this king is seen as so great and so powerful and reigning over uh, all of the earth and reigning over all of time and existing over the sun and the moon forever and ever, why should all these nations come to him? We know that they do. We know that this psalmist is praying that they would And yet the question is, what is he doing that's so important? Why should the nations love him more than the kings that they've established over their own territories? That is to say, why would they make the journey? Why would they come to bring gifts? Why would they come and bow down before him and serve him what looks to be a service that is rendered completely freely? And I believe it is this in verses 12 through 14, we see the heart of the psalm displaying the heart of this king, that he is demonstrating something about God's kingdom through his reign. This king does not conquer the world through political prowess and military might, but rather because he has established justice for the weakest and lowliest in society. That is why this king is worshipped and adored and loved. Verse 12, for. This all-important all important word, for, reveals the entire structure of the psalm. The reason why this king is loved and worshipped and adored and brought gifts is because his reign is perfect. It is not just perfect over time or over space or over ethnicity, ruling over Israel and the nations. It is perfect over all realms of society. executing or executing justice for the lowest and the most needy. Interestingly here, in the very heart of this psalm are gone all future tense verbs. Now this is a little bit uh, dissecting the words, but I believe it's important and it's almost impossible to miss. Over and over again, verse 1 all the way through Verse 11, use the, the psalmist is using phrases, may he, may they. He's asking for something to come to pass. But then in these verses, all future tense verbs are missing. 
The implication is that this is describing what this king does in himself. It is not something that he hopes will come to pass. This is David understanding by the Spirit of God, this is what the righteous king looks like. The psalmist here simply describes who this king will be. If if this prayer is to be answered, here's what this king is doing. Interestingly, these descriptions are uh, are without any uh, marker of who these people are. If you go back to the first few verses of the psalm, the psalmist is praying for a king to be installed over Israel who will execute justice for God's people. And in the Old Testament, we routinely use this phrase, God's people, to describe the people of Israel. But very, very interestingly, in these verses, verses 12 through 14, there's no description on which needy people, which poor people are being saved and delivered. Though he's installed over Israel, his reign extends to the whole earth, and it might be understood that here this king is executing justice, not for his local kingdom, but for his entire kingdom. In the history of the kings of men, very often when an empire is in its height or in its strength, it will execute justice and bring economic blessing to its people. In the scriptures, we know of Egypt, who oppressed the Israelites who lived in their land, and the people of Egypt were blessed, so to speak, by oppressing the people of Israel. In the time of Christ's birth, the Romans execute an empire across the Mediterranean, and the people of Rome are mightily blessed, so to speak, at the expense of the nations which are being oppressed and and taxed literally to death in some places. Here, this king is not executing justice for the lowly in Israel. He's not delivering the poor in Israel. He's delivering all of them everywhere completely. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. You see, he's not willing to simply let a a band of robbers live on one of the bounds of his kingdom. He's He has concern for all the people under his domain everywhere, and he executes justice for them. Because this king is so great, the psalmist then prays that he would have everlasting life. In verse 15, it says, Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Desiring that any human king's name endure forever or exist forever or be praised in every place is near blasphemy. You you must hear this psalm in the life of Israel. We know that the very first commandment that God gave his people was they, they should have no other gods before him. And then the next commandment is like it, that they should not establish idols to bow down to them. They shouldn't establish images of any created thing. 
And very, very interestingly, in God's uh, economy of redemption, almost everything that he does is to establish the renown and the fame of his name. When we remember back to the Exodus, one of the descriptions of why God puts down the Egyptians is he says, so that I will get glory over Pharaoh, whose name was great in that, in that day. It was Pharaoh's name. He was the highest and uh, most powerful person in all of the empire in those days. And yet God says, I'm going to smash Egypt so that my name would be glorified and so that the nations around them might know that I am the Lord. And so when we hear this prayer being given by David for, for one of his spiritual sons, or, or rather one of his sons to reign on the, on the throne, the idea that David would be asking for the name of this king to be known forever and to be celebrated in every place, again, that should be one of those things where it sounds like someone just played the wrong chord. That sounds very strange. Indeed, to a Hebrew ear, that should sound near blasphemy. It should be very concerning that anyone see this prayer and understand its implications. Indeed, this continual prayer of verse 17 may, may people, uh, excuse me, um, of verse 15, may blessings be invoked for him, may prayer may be made continually. This perpetual prayer that's given for the king almost rivals the perpetual worship given to Yahweh in the temple. God commanded the Levites that the fire before him should never go out, that the Levites should attend to the worship of Yahweh forever. And yet, the people here are given a command to pray for him continually. He says in verse 15, May prayer be made continually, may, be, may blessings be invoked for him all the day. And then verse 17, May his name endure forever and his fame continue as long as the sun. This looks very idolatrous if you're a Hebrew hearer or a Hebrew thinker. This seems to indicate that this king is beginning to outshadow the importance of Yahweh himself in the reign over Israel. How can the psalmist ask for these things? This is what we have to ask when we hear this great glorious understanding of what the psalmist is asking for. How possibly could he hope that a human king would be given a name that would endure for all generations? Again, if this is written by David, think about it in David's context. Saul, the king that came before him, had a name that was worthy of passing away. Indeed, David himself recognizes his own sin through his committing adultery with Bathsheba, through taking a census over the people when he was commanded not to, by not executing justice when his sons rebel against him. Over and over again, the kings of Israel and the kings of the nations of which they know, none of those kings are worthy of having a name that exists forever and a fame which is in all places and is as long as the sun. The question is, how possibly can David even hope to ask for these things? Now, because this king's reign is so great, at the end of this psalm, the psalmist then breaks into praise to God because of what God will do. This harkens back to verse 1, where the psalmist is praying to God that God would give 
his justice and his righteousness to the king for the sake of his people. And then assuming that it will be completed, the psalmist breaks into praise to God knowing that it will be completed, having confidence that it will be granted. Verse 18, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. You see, in the light of the rest of these verses, the psalmist sees all of the blessing which comes through the king as being done by God himself. Verse 19, blessed be his glorious name forever. Again, read this immediately in the context of this prayer that the name of the king be known forever. He then celebrates and worships God and says, may God's name be glorious forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The psalm ends then acknowledging God as the source of all of these blessings. Although the king is the one who executes God's justice, it is indeed God's justice. The justice and the righteousness come from God and are worked through the king for God's people. And so God is seen here not as just the one who installs the king, but also as the one who upholds the king and gives him grace. So, knowing that after Solomon's reign, the kingdom is ripped apart, how should Israel not despair when they read this psalm? So often we read psalms and we read them and we try to analyze the context of the author, but it's more important often to analyze the context of the psalm's usage in the people of Israel. What do I mean by that? The psalms, as we've been seeing, are the psalm book or the hymn book for the people of Israel. Psalms do not simply describe or ascribe worship to Yahweh. Many times, psalms are instructive psalms. For example, Psalm 1, which begins the entire Psalter, was placed there to teach the people of Israel that the way to be blessed is to live your life in the meditation of the law of God. And so the psalm that begins the entire Psalter or the entire book of Psalms is a psalm that instructs us. As we've seen two weeks ago, psalms also are oracles. They're not simply praises to God, but they're descriptions of what the psalmist hopes God will do. And that's exactly what we see in today's psalm as well. This is a embodiment or a containing of all the hopes of David for the kings which would come through him to be the fulfillment of that great promise that God gave to him as we saw in 2 Samuel 7. The question is, how was this psalm continued to be used in the nation of Israel? If you're not uh, aware of the history, as soon as Solomon is installed, uh, things go well for quite a while. Solomon reigns over Israel, gold and silver multiply, the boundaries of Israel are slightly extended. But very quickly, Solomon's heart begins to drift from the worship of Yahweh. Remember verse 5, may the people fear you. Well, not only does Solomon not establish the fear of the Lord for the people, he himself does not sustain the fear of the Lord over his own heart. Solomon, the one who pens the great wisdom, lived a life of great folly. And we're not clear whether or not he was granted repentance at the end of his life. He took to himself hundreds, indeed thousands, of concubines and women to be his wives. And this is, uh, if many people, when they read the Old Testament, they think God is not against polygamy. And yet if you read the story of any 
example of polygamy in the Old Testament, it never ends well. That's, that's learning how to read the scriptures. God doesn't just specifically prohibit things. He also shows the fruit. And the fruit of polygamy in Solomon's life was disaster. He began to set up idols in the nation. You see, we remember Solomon as the one who builds the temple, and it would have been good that he would have stopped there. The problem is he keeps making other temples he establishes astropoles and, and places to worship Baal. These people, these uh, demonic powers that are no gods at all, but are demons overruling the, the worship of Yahweh in the life of the people. And so how then are we to understand this psalm if it wasn't ripped out of the Psalter and thrown away by the people of Israel? How are we to understand what they were looking for when they read this psalm. In the light of the kingdom's downfall, we must read this psalm, therefore, as a prophetic picture of what God's king will look like. Very interesting aspect of the Hebrew text here is all of these times where you hear, may he, or may he do this, may he do that, it is not just possible to interpret it in English as may he, but in the Hebrew it can also be read as he will. And although that's somewhat lost from us when we read our translations, it's very clearly the case that this is God's secondary use of this, phrase, of, the, of this psalm. David writes it as a prayer for Solomon, and yet at the same time it becomes a prophetic oracle for us as God's people to understand what will it look like when God restores the kingdom. This psalm should not be merely read as a prayer of blessing for a particular king, one of David's sons, but rather it should be written as the summation or the entire uh, restating of all of David's heart and purposes for who this king might be. In verse 20, we read a statement added by an editor, clearly not part of the psalm because we have copies of the psalm where this, um, this verse is not contained. In saying that, I'm not saying this verse is not scripture. God inspired the editor to put a closing statement on this portion of the Psalter. He finishes all the Psalms about the kings with a statement saying that the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This statement, which is introduced by the editor, I believe is mightily significant because what it does is it says, if there ever is a king who looks like this, all of David's prayers are not just ended, they're answered. They're brought to completion. He doesn't just restate them, he puts forth a prophetic promise to give the people of Israel hope. The people of Israel did not throw this psalm away after the exile when there was no Davidic king left to fulfill this promise. They kept this psalm and they read it in hope. They read it in hope knowing that if a king ever arrives who looks like this and does these things, then all of David's prayers are answered and completely so. In the fullness of time, of course, we know that this is exactly what God did, isn't it? God did not merely let Solomon and his sons drift off into rebellion, and he did not merely let Israel go off into exile. He caused them to return to the land and he then sent his son to be that fulfillment of this great 
promise and longing. In Psalm 2, 7 and 8, we hear the same descriptions of a worldwide everlasting kingdom, but in Psalm 2, it's not given to a son of David, as it is here in Psalm 72. In Psalm 2, it's given to the Son of the Most High, the Anointed One. And this is exactly what we read when we come to the Gospels. In Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33, the promise is given to Mary by the angel, and, and the angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then if we have Psalm 72 in our ears, having just recently heard it, this verse is so clear and precious and sweet. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Psalm 2. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Psalm 72. He's the answer. Verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. He will reign as long as the sun and the moon endure. As soon as Jesus begins his ministry, we see the resurrection of this long-dead Davidic kingdom. Remember, the Davidic kingdom is the extension of the reign of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus begins to preach, in verse 15 of Mark 1, it says, He says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, in those days, the kingdom was, is, was non-existent. It was impossible to be established And yet one, Jesus, the son of David, comes and says, I've brought the kingdom with me. When Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth, he declares that he is the fulfillment of all the prophecies given specifically in Isaiah, but also here in Psalm 72, to deliver and to save the poor and the downtrodden. Uh, When he goes to the city of Nazareth and reads from the scroll, he says to them, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. The reason it's fulfilled in your hearing is because Jesus begins his ministry by preaching and declaring the kingdom of God, and then through the power of the Spirit, he manifests the kingdom of God through healing signs and wonders. In Christ's teaching, not in, just in his ministry of, of signs and wonders, but also in Christ's teaching, he then begins to have this spiritual effect. Remember how we heard the spiritual effect of the king, that the king would establish spiritual fear of the Lord for the people, that they would no longer stray, but they would come and fear the Lord, and that the mountains would establish peace. This kind of vision of the king having a spiritual effect over not just the people, but the land. This is exactly what comes to pass in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, as he begins to teach, not just as he begins to minister in power, but also as he begins to teach, he begins to draw the hearts of his people back to himself, back to worshiping Yahweh in truth and in faithfulness. And he does this by revealing to them that they are the sort of people who are the poor and the needy. So often when we read the Psalms, we are tempted to read this as a social commentary or a political statement of the evils of the kings of Israel and princes of Israel or of the other nations. And indeed, on one level, that's true. But it's so interesting when we go back to verses 12 through 14. Again, it's not these descriptions of the poor and needy. They don't contain adjectives saying the poor in Israel, the poor in Jericho, the poor in Judah. 
It means the poor everywhere. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He demonstrates that he is a king who is able to lift up the poor and downtrodden. And he does this by revealing to them through his gospel ministry that they are the ones who are the poor in spirit and the ones who are needy and oppressed. The poor and needy are not just economically less fortunate than ourselves. We are, I am the poor and needy. That is what our king does when he comes to fulfill this great promise given to David. We are those who are weak and oppressed with nothing in ourselves. Think about this when you live your life, as you go through your days, you who are closer to the end of your days have greater clarity. It's a grace of God that he gives the fall, that he takes away somewhat the folly of youth. And if, if his grace is operative in our lives, he brings all the more to mind that we have nothing in our own selves to commend ourselves to God. Naked we came into this world and naked we will return. We came from this dust, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We are going to die. Again, I remember that great phrase from, what about Bob? When, when Ziggy, the, the young boy, if you haven't seen that movie, this imagery is lost on you, but the, the young boy, Ziggy, he, his whole life is dominated by the fear of death. He cannot do anything fun in his life, like jump off of a pier into a lake, even on vacation, he, even though they go to have a time of, of joy, he cannot do anything fun because he's preoccupied with the understanding we are going to die. And this, I believe, is somewhat what the, the king who fulfills these promises is doing. He's relieving his people of their greatest problems. Not just political oppression, not just economic oppression. He's relieving them of spiritual oppression, the greatest of, of the sort of problems that someone could have in their life. And though Christ was sent specifically to be the shepherd to redeem the lost sheep of the house of Israel, very clearly in his earthly ministry, he is constantly beginning to bring his kingdom outside the bounds of the people of Israel. Remember when the woman comes to be healed, uh, to have her, I believe it's her daughter, healed of a, a demonic spirit? Jesus says, I, I cannot give to the dogs the food or bread which belongs to the children. And she says, even the dogs get a crumb. That's the sort of reign and graciousness of this king. He is constantly extending his reign and boundaries over the whole earth. He shepherds his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And very interestingly, it's, it's my favorite part of the book of, well, not my favorite, but one of my favorite parts of the book of John is when Jesus is teaching in the city of Jerusalem and as soon as some Greeks come to have an audience with him, he knows that it's time for him to go to the cross because he knows that the kingdom is beginning to overflow the bounds of Israel and it is soon time that he is lifted up that he might draw all men to himself. I love that turning point in the book of John because it's showing that this is the king who establishes righteousness, not just for the people of Israel, but all of God's people everywhere. As Christ did bring a measure of fulfillment in his first coming, we likewise must eagerly pray for and look forward to his second coming. 
This is a corrective that is extremely important for those who consider themselves, as I do, post-millennialists. We are looking forward to the progressive victory of God in time. And although we are seeing that today, through the last 2,000 years, the church has gone to every nation in the earth and every people group in the earth, though not all nations have been converted and not all sickness has been stamped out and not all poverty is eradicated, by no means are things perfect. Nevertheless, even if the Lord should tarry for 10,000 years, the urgency of the need for Christ to return would not be diminished in the smallest degree. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is no matter how great things get, through technology, through culture, through peace, through, through cessation of war, through medical advances, nothing is right until Christ is here. That's what I mean by we must eagerly anticipate and look forward all the more to Christ's return. He is in his people, and through his people he blesses the nations, but there is nothing that will be like what it will be like when he is here himself. Even though Christ said at the beginning of his ministry, the kingdom is at hand, as he taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray for the kingdom to come. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, our Father who art in heaven or who lives in heaven, let your name be hallowed or considered holy. What's the chief petition after God's name being holy? That his kingdom would come. And the implication of that we are to ask for God's kingdom to come, it's an acknowledgement that his kingdom is not here. And so we ought to read this psalm, not just describing the king in his first arrival, but also creating in us expectation of what it will be like in his second coming. So as we acknowledge his first present reign, the reign which he installed as he ascended, we ought to all the more be diligent to pray for an increasing manifestation of his reign, both here and now and until that final day. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your son. He is excellent. He is glorious. He is the answer to not only David's prayers, but indeed as we sang this morning, he's the desire of every nation. He's the desire of every people. He's the desire of every heart which has been given grace. Lord, we thank you for Christ's coming and we, we deeply celebrate his first advent, his first coming. But Lord, we, we long for his soon return. As much as we wish to be part of your kingdom expanding today, we also, Lord, know that you are needed. You, we, we need you, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth. We need you to establish your reign in perfection. And Lord, we, we are patient, but God, even as we are patient, deliver us, Lord, from being slothful and give us zeal that your reign and your kingdom would be established, that it would be clear, that it would be present, that it would be precious, that it would be powerful. Father, as we move to this season of Christmas, Lord, we ask that you would, get, uh, that you would give to us a, a vision of your son as being the fulfillment of all of the promises and all of the longings of your people. In Jesus Christ's name and for his glory, amen.